2020 has been a challenging year for the arts, but there's been also some great projects and some news ideas emerging. With Ruth Janssen, we're going to discuss the future of the events, current trends for the online facilitation, and I hope to inspire you in this episode. Welcome to the Sea Arts Podcast. We build a bridge between arts and business and want to inspire you to see arts. There we go. Welcome to a new episode of the Sea Arts Podcast. And today we're learning about creative pivots and the future of the events industry. And I have the big pleasure to welcome Ruth Janssen with me. Ruth is the co-founder of the Event Design Collective based out of Switzerland. He brings out currently uh, immersive online learning sessions for the event canvas methodology and he's been a game changer and maker since 1994 for the whole hospitality and event industry and i'm really excited to learn more about his creative pivots how he uh, faced and also like challenges this unprecedented times of the corona crisis and also give us an outlook about what will be the future of events what did he learn and also Uh, what are the next steps and how can we do better online events and when we can finally get back into real life. So a warm welcome to Ruud all the way from Stuttgart to Switzerland. Where about in Switzerland? I'm in uh, Oberdorf, Baselland, and it's snowing outside. Um, it, is, it was minus six this morning when I walked my dogs. And um, it's, uh, it's getting really chilly here in January. So um, we're bracing for some serious uh, winter weather. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the welcome, it. Fabian. It's a it's a pleasure to uh, to join you um, and to be uh, to be on your podcast. So great. Well, in order to to kickstart, we always want to get to know you a little bit better. How did you get in the events industry? How did you grow up? And uh, and what is your current mission that is driving you forward? Wow. Um, well, you already revealed my age because you said I'm a change maker since 1995. <laughs> Um, if you would ask my parents, I have no idea what they would say, but <clears throat> um, I grew up um, in the Netherlands originally and then <clears throat> moved to a number of different countries uh, over time. So I lived in France for a while. I got parachuted into a French school, not speaking a word of French. So um, <clears throat> I got the speed course on learning French in less than six weeks. Um, then I traveled with my parents to the Philippines, to the Far East. <clears throat> um, and lived there for five and a half years. So that's where my pidgin English comes from. Um, and then I lived in the US for a while. And then about 10 years ago, I moved to Switzerland. Uh, the travels uh, revealed two things to me. The first one was that my name doesn't travel very well, especially my first name. In French and in English, it means something very different from in Dutch. Um, but, you know, you're given a name and you live with it. Uh, I did also, right from the get-go, was very enchanted by um, the whole atmosphere of what um, uh, international travel does to the mind and does to your family. We as a family grew very close because we were in a changing context all the time. Um, Where was that actually? Are... Was, your, was your dad a diplomat or why were you traveling Uh, traveling so much like every five years like a total new country is also like something like i have two small kids that i imagine challenging on the one hand is like the biggest learning because you get to know so many cultures not just by vacationing in, in them but also like really diving into this culture living why in yeah, yeah living in them yeah so so my dad worked for philips electronics and because it's a multinational company he was um traveling to different places and different roles so uh, We always enjoyed as a family to travel, you know, as a family and to live in countries for a certain amount of time. But you also realize that, you know, things are slightly transient or, you know, you if you live somewhere for two years and then, you know, another three years or five years or whatever, um, you learn to adapt to new environments quite quickly and to, you know, settle within that new context. I think that's a, a learn the language, you know, which is very often one of the most tedious things, especially as you grow older. Um, you know, learning French and English for me was not a big problem because I was very young. But learning German, um, you know, has been much more of a challenge for me. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> originally decided to become a hotelier. 
Uh, so I went to hotel management school. Um, you know, <clears throat> living in different countries, we also got to relocate. And sometimes we lived in hotels for extended periods of time. And I think it rubbed off on me that I really um, enjoyed the sense of family that people have when, you know, working or, you know, living in a hotel. I think there's a... There's a thin line between working and living in a hotel, which is also the danger of that profession. Um, you know, it can be a profession where um, it's all time consuming and very intense, especially when you have young kids. You know, you know what it's like with a family. Um, so I did that for, you know, about a decade and a half, which I really enjoyed. Uh, but also saw that what really made a difference in, in, in these hotels were the events that came to the hotels. Right. So you have a fixed context and then different teams bring um, events to the, those places. And within the same context, you have to keep fulfilling a different want or need for that specific event or you know, event owner. And very often from the tip of the tip of the nose of the team, I could tell like, okay, this team is going to put on a very fill in the blank event, right? Mediocre, poor, phenomenal, right? It could be anything, but... <laughs> Very often you sensed it very quickly by talking to the team or meeting them, kind of what the event was going to be like. And I think it's that coding and decoding that got me fascinated about events. And um, I then went on to um, working for a PCO company, professional conference organizer, association management company, did their marketing for a while on a global level and did, you know, we did large scale events, so big association events and and really saw the scope and scale of large-scale events. And, you know, it takes a village to pull off a regular event, but it takes, you know, a city Little to pull town, off yeah. <laughs> a, a large-scale event. And the bigger the event, the smaller the bandwidth for tolerance of change, right? Or the more you have to create a funnel or a tunnel of, like, acceptable deviation of what you agreed upon in order to keep it... Um, you know, safe and to make sure that it's functioning what it's supposed to do. And so you really kind of, you know, are able to build a perimeter around what the event um, should deliver on, um, which also focused my attention to the fact that so many people are spending so much time at events. And unfortunately, our world is has an abundance of mediocre events. And if there's one thing I hate in life that I've learned over time working in five-star hotels and you know, appreciating um, quality is that mediocrity is <clears throat> omnipresent. And I'm on a mission together with uh, our team to rid the world of mediocre events. That is a mission statement. And uh, so, yeah, I already introduced a little bit the event design collective. And uh, I also like 2019, I got to know the event canvas methodology. Tell us a little bit more. How did you then came up with the idea also uh, in a way? Uh, it first When I first saw it, it reminded me a lot of the business model canvas. Tell us a little bit how uh, you connected the dots from your passion of getting rid of these mediocre events and really putting on Uh, putting out experiences that that make a change because that's what uh, what you in a way frame with the event design collective. Yeah, so um, Rul and I, um, uh, my co-founder Rul Frische um, and I have, when we dabbled into using the business model canvas, <clears throat> and I, I first came across it when I met Alex Osterwalder um, in Vancouver 10 years ago at the World Education Conference. I was on the International Board of MPI. And he came into the board and talked to us about, you know, the Tower of Babylon and the types of how to articulate how businesses create value um, and how value propositions are brought to the market and, you know, very simple way of decoding how businesses work. And I found it terribly fascinating to kind of wrap my head around that. But it took a while. It took me probably a couple of months, maybe a quarter to two quarters. And then we started applying it because I think by application, you start to learn how something works. And so we applied it within the business model of, you know, MPI and how it functions in different areas um, in our volunteer leadership role for MPI on the international board. And um, he had just put out the book and, you know, we started reading it and, um, We already had a, I think, a long time hunch that, you know, there must be a way to create better events or to design better events, but we really didn't know how to do that or what was required to make it happen. 
and the business model canvas kind of gave me a deja vu of what you know sheet music is to musicians like you could be a fantastic musician without knowing how to read sheet music but if you want to scale what you do if you want to improve the quality if you want to record it for posterity whatever it might be sheet music comes in terribly handy you know when you're composing or when you're trying to communicate something to other people in another place playing another instrument right but it does require quite a bit of skill first of all to be able to code and decode a piece of music onto sheet music or from scratch with just a couple of lines on a piece of paper composing something that you know might have a shelf life and the fascination for that is i think you know we all have the same you know 12 notes we play with at least you know they started off with less in the gregorian music but by the time we're in today's music um, if you count the official chromatic scale but look at the amount of music that comes out of those 12 notes, you know, analog or digital, it doesn't matter. You know, music was way ahead of events in terms of going digital, right? I remember seeing um, uh, Herbie Hancock uh, on a Sesame Street episode explaining to kids, you know, how you can sample music and how digital music can now, you know, enter into the analog world. And this was, you know... <laughs> way before the internet even existed, right? You can probably find the YouTube on, on, on or, or a video on YouTube. Um, and I recommend you to look back at it because the deja vu we're having in events is a very much a deja vu that other kind of parallel worlds have gone through already, right? It's, it's nothing revolutionary. We're just late to the game. Yeah, that, that's a statement, but that's all in a way it's true that like, uh, we were all expecting rather like a gradual shift. And then through Corona, it all got accelerated so much that currently uh, we look at the, the pictures from past events from 2019 at the early events that we still could realize 2020. And it just feels surreal. So many uh, persons stuffed into, uh, packed into a room and, and these things. And right now, on the one hand, there is a big yearning to, to get these people back into a place but on the other hand like all these safety concerns and like just the, the vaccine that's getting started there's still uh yeah a certain way a certain way to go but the good thing is like the methodology that you created it works like it does not uh require the people to meet in in person it's rather like uh what what is an event that's the question and how does it create value be it in person be it online be it hybrid and the same goes for, for a piece of music or, you know, for anything for that matter. You know, some are insignificant and mediocre and will never be remembered and others are epic. You know, what's the difference? Um, you know, I think that's that's like an endless fascination, I think. If you have an appreciation for for the creation of something or for the manifestation of something, um, I'm sure the, the very best pieces of music were never written down at first, but were later, you know, reconstructed and, and noted down so that it could be handed down to different generations right at first everything went from memory just like songs or stories right but ultimately people invent, invented the printing press and started writing it down and you know gutenberg created something that could then take away the handwriting and before you know it we have pdf readers and ebooks right it's but the the essence is the same it's the same thing and so what we've tried to do uh, back in 2014, we launched the event Canvas uh, after, you know, we like to think about a year of thinking, but it's probably more like 20 years plus a year of thinking, you know, having mulled through all these experiences to then say, how could we decode the way that an event creates value? And how could you create kind of that sheet music for events so that teams of people can compose together um, and create events deliberately without first having to deliver them but actually think about them first before you go into delivery mode and that's what the mental model that we saw from the business model canvas that fits on a single piece of paper works really well it gives you a common language to talk about something and it gives you the opportunity to point your finger at something on that you know coded map um, <clears throat> and then that something you're pointing at is the thing that changes or that moves right some people like to call that innovation <clears throat> it's an overly used word that some people, you know, just use because they think it's uh, it sounds interesting. But innovation is nothing more or less than being able to point at the thing that changes and being able to articulate what how it then creates value. And I think in events, many things are done from the gut, you know, from gut feeling or 
but everyone that's involved has a different perspective. And, you know, it takes a village or a city to pull off an event. So it is really important to get everyone on the same page so that, you know, what narrative you're trying to create from which they call a perspective. And if you know that, then you can actually deliver a much better event because you can take all the, take away all the stuff that doesn't add value. So you can simplify it and you can uh, strip it from the non-essential which ultimately makes it better, right? All of the best quality things that I've seen have less and not more. Yeah, like the, the simplicity, but like to make it really, in a way, simple, accessible, that's, uh, that's the hard journey. And I can totally agree that like uh, what you pointed out, that taking a bit more time to really think and profoundly get into what you want to achieve with the event from all different perspectives. It's so, uh, it's so core because sometimes... Uh, it just happens also request that we're getting it that everything feels already so so sad and they um and like sometimes it's really stepping back and looking a big from a broader perspective onto what do you really want to uh, to achieve and align this and then there are so many agencies in between and getting like the people that that well on the one hand the people that you design the event for but also the participants and the people that do something on stage to bring them together and then from there on uh, articulate you, you you pointed out articulate the change and articulating the change that's really core because an event it's it's there to to create some it's not just in the best case it's not just there to entertain the event that uh, might might have a change uh, how how do you define like what is what is an event and how does it create value well, <clears throat> like you say, um, you know, s simplicity is complexity resolved, right? So that's 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 a, a quote that somebody wrote down at some point in their life, and I think it's 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 a phenomenal choice of four words. Um, and when I was, you know, watching, you know, knowing what you guys do with Dundu, for example, is a great example, right? So I was just watching the video where you know people have an appreciation for the organic movement of the Dundu puppet. And at some point in the video, you review, you reveal kind of, you know, very subtly that there's, you know, puppeteers behind it, each holding multiple, um, I don't know what you officially call the tools that you use, but because um, um, how many of you are there behind the puppet to, to make it function? It's always five, even like for it's baby five. or the giant, it's always five. Yeah. So I'm sure that you found that, you know, you, you probably tried with four or tried with six, but five is the number, right? It's like... Well, for like a human kind of figure, it's uh, we have some kind of like synchronous movement of the arms and, and the legs. And then there is uh, one middle, like one center. And so that's why we came up with five. Currently, uh, there's a construction of a new puppet going on, which will be a bit higher. And we might need more puppeteers because it's getting more and more complex. On the other hand, like a human movement talking about that it's also something super complex we take it for granted because we do steps for a whole time and kind of it's also like taking it apart and then making it simple and beauty again that's uh, our our task when we when we bring dundu to life and i think that elegance is is the art of stripping away the non-essential keeping the essence right and the essence is in the movement it's in the you know what gives it humanity although it's an inanimate object Five humans can drive its can drive its behavior, right? Um, maybe if you look at event design, it's no different, right? If you get five people together to think about how an event creates value for a specific set of stakeholders, even if they don't know the stakeholders, they can make a very humane event design because their collective brain power, um, you know, takes away a large part of the bias and enables people to really create something together. You know, and I think that's one thing that I've seen is, you know, event design not being a solo sport. It's something that you always need to do as a team, right? You do need people like yourself, you know, you're, you're about to become a certified event designer. And, the, and that element within it means that you can facilitate a group of people to create an event, Right? Much like a composer might not play the instrument, might not play the violin or the timpani, but can interpret the narrative that's on, on the piece of music and then orchestrate how it gets brought to life. And I think that's, that's very much kind of the role of a facilitator of event design. It's the enablement of a team of people to systematically come to a specific 
uh, human output, which the effort of doing that shows in how the event ultimately manifests itself. Uh, granted, you can make fantastic event design and still do a very lousy event, right? So good event design doesn't always mean a good event. You still need the power of delivery and execution. You need, you need the skill and the art, you know, artisanship of people who know how to deliver an event. So the one doesn't replace the other. It actually is a precursor to the other or, you know, a postcursor, so to say, of interpreting what went well and what didn't go so well and how you could improve that for a future iteration. And I think this is where rehearsing and practice and scripting and narrative and all of the things that, I mean, <clears throat> it's nothing new, right, Fabian? I mean, this has been happening in theater since, um, I don't know how many, you know, decades, oh, yeah. uh, centuries, probably. Um, and so the parallels make it so interesting. Totally. Well, looking at uh, the process that I've gone gone through in the in the certification, it has also like it is in a way event design thinking because you really uh, like map out what are the personas, um, who are the different stakeholders of the event, and then also uh, what I got to know through uh, through design thinking when I was conducting workshops at the HPI is these empathy maps that you really uh, dive into like. You, you empathize with them. You, you think like, what, what do they expect from the event? On the other hand as well, what are their pains and how can we, uh, how can we actually re resolve that? And design thing is also something that I learned. It works only as a group because sometimes we're so focused on our own perspective. And there's again, like the, the correlation with Dundu that we have this meeting point of forces and that it shows that we reached a point probably in time where, uh, only the collective intelligence will bring out the next uh, new steps. There might be some uh, some mavericks that give new impulses that are standing in front of a crowd, but it needs the crowd, it needs the larger groups, it needs these this really uh, creative teams and these co-creation spaces to uh, to bring out new things. And that was I what I what I uh, could also experience during uh, during the sessions we had. That sometimes you're uh, you're still too fixed on your position, and then. Uh, through other persons, you can uh, you can widen this this horizon. That's so uh, so amazing about uh, about the methodology. Yeah, it's I mean it's an enabler, right? So <clears throat> we, I mean everyone knows that if you learn together, you stay together, right? So your best friends are probably people from you know university or school or people that you've met along the way, and you've gone through some kind of an experience together. Sometimes a short one, sometimes a long one. I think we become better and better over time to also maximize like short experiences to become very you know deeply rooted i think that that's what um good design can do um but <clears throat> the fact that learning together you know if you fire the synapses together and and they bond literally not just in your brain but in somebody else's brain at the same time creates an creates a very powerful connection between people um and ultimately you know, behavior change, you know, nobody likes to change their behavior. You know, if you say, oh, I'd like to change your behavior from here to here, you know, most people will be, no, thank you, right? Um, so that's not the wording that you use, or it's the mechanism, but it's not how it works, right? Uh, and I think that's what's so important about, you know, in, in the process that we have, there's, there's three things that you do. The first one is, you know, consciously articulate the change, then you create a frame, a design frame of all the restrictions that you have. And only after you have that from at least two perspectives, two stakeholders, sometimes even many more, only then can you, you know, lay those on top of each other and then figure out, okay, what kind of experience journey or instructional design, you know, we kind of figure that as a timepiece. So it's almost like as if sand falls from the top part to the bottom part. As a result of going through a series of experiences, you learn things, right? Um, either by experience or instruction, and ultimately any experience gets converted into a kind of learning, right? So, and, and so it's either skills or knowledge or attitude learning or people learning that happens during that amount of time. And, you know, um, I just brought my daughter back to the airport. As you said, she's doing her master's degree. You know, there it takes two years, right? Or in a bachelor's degree, it could take four years or... Um, but sometimes in a 
in a curriculum or like in, in, in the learning and the event design certificate program, it's three intense days together designing a project that someone brings and then going back for six months and doing the same thing with your own team to prove that you can do that and submit it back for peer review. So it's very collaborative and it's very, um, uh, it's also highly systematic, which gives people a sense of comfort, you know. I think if there's a process, you can trust the process and trust the team. With a lack of process, you know, everybody has a different opinion as to what you should do, and it just becomes mayhem, right? It's chaos. <laughs> and, you know, that... I think we live in a world that's extremely in need of more collaboration and um, ability for people to orchestrate things together, because if you can do that, then you can... Uh, take away differences or take away biases, you know, take very diverse thinking um, and make what you do very inclusive of the needs of those specific stakeholders that you have in your mind. Um, yeah. And from these four areas of learn that you mentioned, skills, knowledge, attitude, and people learning, what do you think is currently the most challenging one to facilitate online? Because I, I feel like the shift in event has been pretty dramatic. What do you think it's currently for the events that you've been designed? Look at what's the most challenging one to really uh, facilitate, if there to is facilitate. one. Like to, to facilitate, to bring out to the people that they say, ah, I had a great attitude learning, or I had a great... Uh, people learning on, on this one? Do you think like there, there is a major one that, that currently has been maybe neglected or is it always the, the fusion of, of all of them that, uh, that makes the event the way uh, it creates value? It's a good question. Um, this morning I got a reminder on Facebook of our 2019 cohort in San Diego State um, you know, that went through the program. Um, and somehow... These things don't happen by coincidence. You know, Facebook's algorithms know exactly kind of how to trigger things in time, right? Which uh, memories are active or fade over time. And so <clears throat> I think there's order and sequence in how you, how people are ready to, to change. But you need to figure that out. So you don't know, right, from the get-go. I think one skill that we're seeing dramatically required is what I like to call digital dexterity, right? The ability to, you know, be ambidextrous, you know, in, in everything. I mean, it's, it's about, um, um, let's say people that went to the live program, let's, let's take that example. And I think you were in, in a program where some people had done the live program and some people just went directly into the online program. If in hindsight, we asked them, you know, which learning was better, right? Because we wanted to assess whether what we've delivered, you know, works. And so literally our net promoter scores, which go from minus 100 to plus 100, and, and the why question that gets asked after the question, you know, as a result of having attended this event, how likely are you to recommend it to a colleague or a friend? People give a score from zero to 10. And everyone that gives you the nine or nine or a 10 is a promoter and everybody that gives a seven or lower is a demoter. So the plus 61 means that there's 61% more promoters than demoters. That's our average score. Let's look like a benchmark of what we want to achieve. Um, in our online programs, our NPS scores have been higher than in our offline programs, which amazed us because we were like, you know, it, it feels like a limiting experience for, for in some ways, right? Because you're not... You're not in San Diego for three days and, you know, literally on a campus designing under a palm tree, you know, having, you know, going for sunset cocktails at the Cannonball Club overviewing the Pacific Ocean. That's an experience, right? I find it hard to replicate something like that online. Um, but the attitude learning that happens, uh, no, let's put it this way. When people went back and had to do their project... Right? So it was all fun kumbaya when we were in the room in San Diego and designing under a palm tree, wearing your sunglasses in January. But then when people had to go back to their teams in their offices or maybe geographically dispersed teams and had to design with them online, right, using Mural and using the same paper but in digital format on your screen, 
the skill it requires to facilitate people online is different from facilitating people live, right? It's not more difficult or easier. It's just different. But people did find that they were lacking that skill after maybe the three-day live program. Whilst having gone through the three-day online program, all of the things that we were doing were using the same tool set that you would use in the six months after that. So actually, you got more learning done in those three days <clears throat> in relatively less time, right? Because there's a five-hour day of instruction in our three-day program times three is 15 hours versus 24 hours in the offline live program. People get distracted more easily offline, right? The, yeah, the level of focus is less. The level yeah. of focus is less, but the, the concentration duration that you can consume from people is also less, right? So you have to, you have to funnel and pinch kind of the, the learning into a smaller bracket of change, uh, which requires something different in the instructional design, right? Back to the digital dexterity. Um, there's a certain basic skill set you need to be able to operate, right? There's also a basic set of equipment or, or stuff, right, that you need. You need a proper camera, proper audio, maybe two screens. You need a proper internet connection. You need all of these basic parameters uh, in order to, to, to do that. It's almost like your digital health, right? I was just telling you yesterday, after seven years, my dear old modem, you know, crashed and burned. Um, and you're at a loss, right? Because you have to go back to your 4G signal on your mobile phone. And then you realize the difference of what it is. And I can have all of the backup cameras, microphones, cables, computers that I want. But if my essential connection over there, you know, melts down, because I don't have a backup router in the house. And if you're listening to this podcast and you don't have yeah. a backup router in your house, get one, right? <laughs> it's only, you know, it's, it's worth the investment because if you go offline... It's not very handy in today's world. Um, anyway, James long story to say, is there, is there a priority in any of the four? Yes, there is. I think just like in my story with the router, right? I can have the best computer and four cameras and the best microphone on the planet. But if my essential connection at the beginning doesn't pull through, there's a critical path that your learning goes through, right? So uh, sometimes you need to start with skills, right? And, and get that done or a piece of knowledge, right? Sometimes you need to start with some attitude learning because some people will not, you know, pick up a new skill until they have to, right? Example, um, our team in January um, thought of themselves as pretty dexteritous, you know, as having a high level of dexterity in digital because we were facilitating Zoom calls from time to time with teams of people that went through our classes. If you compare that to the digital dexterity that's now here in January 2021 in that very same team, which in quarter two of 2020, we put a lot of internal training, testing, stretching, learning, skills, knowledge, attitude, people learning, all of those four to build the digital dexterity to a certain level, which also included maybe upgrading your internet connection and your computers and your cameras and your microphones and your lighting and everything that goes along with it. Um, so it's always an orchestration of multiple things. And I think if you lived through it, if you've experienced it yourself, it's much easier to retrace the path of what it takes to get to that place. The problem is once you know something, you forget how difficult it was to learn it, right? If you ask my kids, you know, when I speak French, I, I, I can dream in French or in English or in Dutch or now even a little bit in Swiss German, but... If you now need to learn it from scratch, like my kids have to learn it in school, it's much more difficult. But I forgot how steep the learning curve was when I was eight and got parachuted into a French school to pick up, you know, within three, four weeks, like the full vocabulary of an eight-year-old going to a French school. So, yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, learning paths are different for every people, uh, every type of person. It depends on your, what you know before, your your you know plasticity and willing to learn <laughs> how stretchable is your brain and how much are you you know um how much the student lives in you right because you know there's one saying that i saw when we do our program in amsterdam we stay at the student hotel and i have this you know they have these bags they give you um which says may the student in you live forever right or there's another one that says may the student in you never die but i prefer the first one right so um because 
the ability to learn continuously, I think, is a is a is a gift, and it's not until when you don't have it or lose it or see it, you know, perishing in other people that you're kind of like, whoa, that's scary, <laughs> right? Totally. Well, I think it comes along with the mindset. There's this term of fixed mindset and, and growth mindset, and I think these uh, last ten months really. Uh, challenged our mindset, not just our heartbeat in a way, but also our mindset that we say, okay, we have to upgrade our technology, but also what kind of events and experience can can happen online. Uh, when I was listening to a podcast interview of you, you also mentioned that for an event attendee, the experience of for a like, regular event, how we used to have them starts when they're packing their suitcase and getting on a plane. So it, it's like you come into a different environment right now. I think that might be a challenging point that right now we're we're event hopping. We can be on CES today. We can uh, then get some other learning and it's all at our finger tips and kind of like doing these jumps and being like ready with our mindset there but also what you mentioned like sometimes all of these travel have been maybe as well some kind of distraction maybe we're, we're more we could be more focused right now the question is is it always about being super focused because there's always this life work-life balance integration of flow uh, however you you might call it. but i think that at least for me, I think that has been uh, as well uh, a challenge and it's an ongoing challenge to say, okay, uh, on what to focus and having the right mindset to, um, to, stay, to stay hungry in these, in these times. Yeah, and I think it's part of the digital dexterity, right? So at least what I'm experiencing over time, I mean, you know, we've, we've always done a lot of Zoom calls and, and used murals and stuff for the last, I would say, 10 years. So that hasn't really changed. Um, what has changed is that something has got taken away, which was, you know, the, you know, the physical travel to January. Uh, you know, like in January, we used to go to San Diego for the last five years and deliver a three-day program and then do a program in Las Vegas. And usually you went skiing in between in Utah. That experience of spending time, you know, like with you know, my colleague Ul, for instance, where we would travel for the week or that, that is, that's, taken away from the equation, um, which technically means, you know, if you take away our travel days, we have 60, 70 bonus days this year, right, of not being on planes or in transit. But when you're in transit, you're also thinking, you're also, you know, you're doing different things, your, your body works differently. And I think you have to, um, I think you have to retrain how you do the thinking and how you spend that's 60, 70 days. It's very easy to fall in the trap of just spending it doing more of the same thing. Um, <clears throat> and this is one of the reasons why we have, um, you know, now started this uh, EDC mastermind with a guy called uh, Paul Wilkins, uh, who's our kind of like, um, um, how would I call that? Um, sometimes he refers to it as executive babysitter. Uh, which I don't know if that's the right term, <laughs> but it's almost like he, he is, he's providing learning for us as a team, but also of people that are, you know, really interested and speak the language of event design, but then become part of a core group who learn how to work on their business instead of just in their business, you know, and think about these things. And, you know, and he, he, he has this thing that keeps striking me that I've been practicing a lot, which is the concept of strategic quitting. Uh, which is focusing on the things that you're really good at um, because it's usually only two or three and all the other stuff should be done by people that are good at those other things, um, you know, because they, it might be in their set of things that they're really good at and really enjoy doing. And for somebody else, it might be a chore. What that then gives you is the, the other thing, which is, he says, the purpose of thinking is to stop thinking. I love that. It's, it's, it's so simple that it's complex, right? Because <laughs> I've thought about it a lot and I can't stop thinking about it, which means that I have to think much more to stop thinking. And sometimes stopping thinking is the thing you need to do before pressing the button and jumping from, you know, PCMA convening leaders to CES to, uh, you know, to doing a podcast to this afternoon, we have two design sessions and, you know, playing Alpine in the evening is my decompression mode. So I started playing music again, which I hadn't done for 10 years. Because I usually didn't, I wasn't a very loyal musician to the rest of the people playing music with, you know, that I was playing with, because I was traveling all the time. So I was a very unreliable musician. 
in the last year, I've become much more reliable. And, you know, every Monday and Tuesday of the week, I go out and play the Alphorn, which is the most simple instrument on the planet, but it's the most mentally challenging to master. So this has been some some learning experiences for you that you're taking away these kind of travel experiences, skiing with Royal Aiden in Utah, and kind of right now, in a way, zooming back in, what are the skills that you already have and kind of like re-implementing them? Because one thing I always uh, ask my my interview guests is like, what are their creative routines? How do they stay creative? Because I think a very important point that you put out, it's not just doing more of the same stuff and then at some point that you get bored out by it, there's a certain amount of, of focus that you can give and beyond it's like uh, if you're in the gym and just like working on the same muscle the whole day and don't give uh, give it time to uh, to recover and then from there on grow, it won't be grown but you're kind of like uh, running around in a circle like a, like a, like a hamster wheel. Uh, what are like creative routines that you've especially like in the last year established for yourself beyond the Alphorn And do you have like a, a creative schedule? Do you have some kind of, of life or creativity hacks that you could share with us? Hmm. So I like to talk to people like you, which is my cre- creativity hack. <laughs> <laughs> And then explore places we haven't been before, right? So sometimes places don't need to be physical places geographically that you go to. They can be places you haven't been to before, right? Like on the last program, you know, we met at IMAX and then you said, um, you know, we invited you to join the program. And then you created, um, you know, from your perspective of um, analog, right? So we try to balance analog and digital. What kind of analog storytelling or recaps or things could we do? And I thought that was a really refreshing way to um to explore a space that we both hadn't explored but together we dared to do it right so maybe on your own it's diff- more difficult than if you have somebody like an ally to do it with right and i think that's what i'm finding is that i'm trying a lot of things for the fir- uh, a lot of things for the first time and there's some other stuff that i'm being more systematic in right meaning like i love the routine of walking my two english bulldogs and you know whatever the weather it might be they're my rhythm clock of you know, uh, like basic needs, right? They have a very basic need. If you feed them in the morning, they will need to go walk at 10 o'clock in the morning. And in the afternoon at three o'clock, it's the same thing because my youngest English bulldog has, you know, uh, spaghetti in his brain. And when it hot wires, you better leave him, you know, in, in the free and in the wild to go run and, you know, lose his energy. Because it's, it's like a kid, right? It's, it's just like that. And they remind you of the kid in yourself because you need that too, right? I need to go out in nature and walk around. And that's usually when you get the best ideas. Uh, so I think, you know, s- some things are becoming more rhythmic. And maybe that's part of, you know, I turned 50 this year. So my brother warned me, he's two years older than me, said, you might hit some nostalgia. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? It's like you start looking at older pictures and you start reconnecting with, you know, friends from uh, from uh, from International School Manila that I hadn't you know spoken to in a while, even on a Zoom call. Um, but also like uh, kind of a rhythm and a pace. Right? You know, when during when during the day you're most um, when your peaks and troughs are. Uh, I think I've become quite systematic in the times that I eat. Right. Which is also like I think um, having worked from a home office for the last decade in the beginning i had a hard time you know finding a rhythm um because you can just get carried away with your work and forget to eat and sleep or whatever it might be right i found that rhythm probably after two or three years uh, but now it's like embedded it's not a you know it's it's it just works and i know when i'm productive when i'm not um and i think also now after this year my family understands that too Uh, which is also like you have your own rhythm but also you have the rhythm of the people around you right who might go to offices or to school or whatever it is and i have a 17 year old son and my wife you know works full time and and used to go to the office but now we both work from home um and now my kid is the only one that goes out of the house you know and then my daughter comes back from university from time to time and it's it's those times of change like she was here for three weeks that you realize your own rhythm Right, so I think it gradually changes slowly over time. And you could probably map out your daily rhythm as to what works for you. 
And I think that's what I would encourage you to do is to do it much more consciously um, and think about that, but also not be like, don't be, um, you know, I, I always get a little bit annoyed or I don't know, like people that are like super, oh, after this at this time. And it's like, you know, super strict on stuff that gets me a bit agitated because you're not constant, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's a wave. There's, there's waves of things. And when you get to know your waves and you get to know how you deal with them, you know, take that flow. Because it's, I think that's like, um, um, you know, like a boat cannot go against the waves unless you're a submarine. But it's pretty lonely down there. I think if you stay down there for a while, you run out of oxygen. And... I've once took I, I once took a catering course with a guy um, that was a, a chef on a submarine. I was very impressed by him because he could cook on one square one on on, on one square uh, what do you call it like uh, one square uh, one cubic meter right. He had like yeah. his kitchen was no bigger than one cubic meter, and this guy was so bloody efficient you wouldn't believe it right because that's how he was wired. That's what he was doing every day. So you get used to the constraint. I think and what I've learned is that if your constraint is constant, like, you know, I've been living in this house for the last seven years. I know the environment fairly well and feel delighted. I live outside a city and out in the green and have a garden and all of that, because it's, I think that's what's made my life um, actually not that different from the way it was before, to be very honest. The only difference is I don't smell kerosene. I don't rush to get to planes. Uh, I spend way less money on travel and way less CO2 gets pumped into the air because of my travels. You do miss meeting those other people, but um, there are other ways of doing that too. And I think the fact that something has been taken away from us, you know, like we've, we've jerked ourselves into a new reality where face-to-face -face encounters at scale do not take place. Um, now we realize how important they are or many more people realize how important they, they are. What has become easier for me is the fact that now everybody else is able to work just like the way I used to be working in the past number of years without having me motivate them to do it. Right? <laughs> so that's become a lot easier, <laughs> to be honest. Because I don't, you know, I enjoy teaching stuff or like, you know, getting people on, up to speed on stuff, but not on the basics. I mean, some of the basic stuff is just gets really annoying very quickly. Yeah. It's like I could never teach my own kid to drive a car. You need somebody else to do that, right? <laughs> yeah, so like, uh, yeah, for me, it sounds like a bit like, on the one hand, like self-wiring, but then also like rewiring and, and re, uh, yeah, readjusting. On the, on the other hand, what you, what you said, like, uh, as human beings, we don't like change too much. So like kind of also balancing the amount of change we want. And I always remember this quote from the book, change before you have to change. Last year, we all got kind of like into this turbulent change, but in a way, like we need some constant, some uh, some things to rely on. As you said, like you already had uh, the setup done and you could polish a little bit here and there. Some had to do uh, like major, major adjustments there. Um, and from maybe like this fear of nostalgia, let's let's head a bit into the future. Yesterday, we heard that IMAX is not going to happen this year. Uh, what do you see as the future for events for this year, but also like on 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 a midterm? Uh, do you already see some some new trends emerging? Digital is not going uh, to to go away. But what what kind of concept in the event design session that you're conducting currently? What what feeling do you do you have? What hope can you give? to to the industry because i also feel there's been this uh this power shift towards like uh, the tech savvy agencies and uh and for artists like for us it's been a, definitely like a hard time because some experience don't work uh, online as good as they do in real life so tell us a little bit from uh from these from this outlook well first of all i'm, I'm sorry that you know, IMAX doesn't take place uh, because, you know, we're staunch allies with them in bringing people together and, you know, delivering our ADC Level 1 program there. Um, those kinds of partnerships, you know, we, we did that for the last two years with uh, Caesars Entertainment. Um, I really believe in kind of that, the partnership workings of organizations doing things together. I think that's super critical, right? So, um, so the fact that that doesn't happen only amplifies the pain of what then gets missed, right? So I think that's uh, 
the ability to rewire and do that differently, you know, like the way IMAX has done in the last two editions, also re- re- reveals a lot of the DNA of an organization, right? The way an organization does that exposes their true self, right? So um, after seeing so many events, there's something that we like to say, which is, you know, show me an organization's event and they tell you about their DNA. Like go to, go to an organization's event for two, three days and you can read their DNA. It's like, it's like a PCR test on, you know, uh, not positive, negative, but it's, it's like a gradient of, you know, their abilities or, you know, the way they do things. And it, so reading culture over time and seeing how it changed, I think is, is super fascinating and interesting. It's like business anthropology. Um, so if you look at it from that perspective, the old adage of you know ability to adapt to that change and how it manifests itself in the team and in the organization, how it profiles itself, the honesty and communicating that and not hiding stuff. I think the timeliness of that is a is a is a big thing, and I think that's very commendable. Um, what it means for us and trends into the future is that more and more organizations face this. Right, this week CES is bringing together 150,000 people in uh, Las Vegas. Um, you know, other types of partnerships are existing. You know, uh, IBM is helping them figure out how to do that, right? So now the platforms change, right? From what used to happen at the Las Vegas Convention Center, which maybe got expanded because of this event. Now, all of a sudden, you know, shift to a different type of platform or it's an and-and, you know, but you cannot release the space in the future because, you you know, there's a hope and willingness to bring it back into a form um, that might not exist last year or this year and these are difficult decisions because the bigger it gets you know like the opening of the olympics in japan was on tv yesterday here you know there are people that need to take very critical decisions because the critical path of a large event of that scale you know having to build infrastructure or whatever it might be the critical path is long and so i think the test now is how can you Optimize the critical path without driving your team nuts. Right? I think that's part of the maybe part of the d- digital dexterity. Um, but also, w- w- you know, n- n- nobody has the truth, right? So one of the things we do is we study a lot of these events, right? So we, we had a repository. Uh, happy to you know put up the link to your to your to your listeners. Uh, a repository, which is basically a matrix gradient from you know offline to online and from you know uh, highly highly organized on the top to, you know, self-organizing and events shift on that scale. There's maybe even a third dimension that you could include there. Um, because if you understand, if you understand the behaviors of events, you know, we like to look at events like kids, right? Like we're currently designing an event that's a 15 year old event and it's, it's behaving like a 15 year old, right? It's in the middle of its puberty. Uh, you know, some young events grow really fast, but you know, they're still wearing diapers, right? And some events are 25 or 35 years old and go through a midlife crisis or, you know, whatever it is that so that you can draw human parallels to these things. And I don't think, you know, the change of context is only one variable. It's in studying its behavior over time that you can understand what it does for the organization and how the people that are involved with it need to deal with that. And I think this is where why we're so fascinated or preoccupied with event design. And we're actually just, uh, you know, we've just literally... Uh, published the alpha of a new book called Design to Change, uh, which we've made only available to our masterminds at this at this period. But it's it's like a companion guide between the language and the conversation. So a language is only one th- is only one part of the equation. What you need to have is a conversation with that language. True. But you need to master the language first, you know. And I think this is where whether it's a digital language or the event design language or whether it's French or German or whichever it is. The skill set base needs to be there to have a proper conversation, you know, beyond the supermarket conversation when you have to pay your uh, groceries. There's a level of sophistication to that that people are now getting used to. Um, so I think it's a super exciting development. Um, predicting the future is madness. I don't think you should even attempt to do it. Anybody that calls themselves a futurist, I tend not to believe, right? Um 
I, you know, I, I think you can document the past and you know what's happening in the present, but your most important minute is the next one because it could lead anywhere, right? But if you can, if you can sketch a story into the future and position a joint idea of a group of people to say, maybe in October we could do something like this, right? And you describe it in a level of vagueness or clarity that allows room for interpretation, then if you can see that story in the future and position it in time, you can make it happen. And if you visualize it, it becomes even easier, right? That's what Netflix does in a highly sophisticated level, right? But <laughs> look at the predictive powers of movies or look at the predictive powers of you know storytelling or events are no different, uh, except they're quite expensive. They usually don't have a rehearsal. Script often you know, lacking and usually there's no casting or very limited. So if all of those things can be amped up a little bit over time, which needs to happen, because if your keynote presenter has poor lighting, they can be as good as they want to be behind their computer, but it's it's not going to land. Right? It's not going to work. And if you want to interact with 150 people, we don't have the right technology or the right curation or the right facilitation. It's not going to work. And it's not until people try that and understand what it is and how it works and what the limitations are that you will um, build that level of experience. And so we think, I think we're building it all together. Uh, some are learning faster than others because they just spend more time there. Right. I think 10,000 hours is, what is it? Like three and a half years. Yeah. So I think digital dexterity, you know, let's check in in you know, July, 2023 and see where we are then. I think then most people will have a decent amount of digital dexterity and others that started earlier, have it earlier they just have it easier because they can spend their time elsewhere instead of the basic skill set of trying to build digital dexterity. Anyway, that's long... the way, that's the way to mastery that definitely to, to go on the journey. And, uh, sometimes, uh, I, last year I spent a lot of time like studying flow, the science of peak performance. And there it says flow can be, uh, kind of like a shortcut to mastery because you're learning, uh, learning so much quicker. And in, in this context, I also saw like in the end at an event or as well in school, the main challenges as well to put people in this in this state of flow because then you're you're hyper focused, you're super motivated, and you're also getting getting more creative. Uh, and now looking back at the last year uh, with your experience in online facilitation. What have been the one or two major aha moments for online facilitation? Is it the technical tools or is it as well like uh, standing in front of a group in a room and also standing in front of a group like on Zoom? What, um, what were like the major learnings like with the, with the online facilitation for you? Um, I think as a facilitator, you always have to think three steps ahead of where where the group is, right? So I think that's important. So if you have to do it on the cuff and you don't have a system, that's quite difficult because you have to be very good at improvising and improvising to the future, right? Um, so, you know, if you're the star player of the Queen's Gambit and you know how to play chess, you know, and, and think five moves ahead with every possible option, then you might be really good at that, but I'm not. So I, I need, I need a way to do that, right? So, um, so I think staying ahead is like, uh, a national sport, you know, just to give you a very simple example. Um, at the beginning of this year, we said, you know, we want all of our team members need to be kitted out with the right kit, right? Three cameras, a video mixer, you know, two uh, softbox lights, uh, proper backdrop, sticker in the background. It's very simple, right? It's a set of instructions and maybe a small investment to make. But what we weren't spending on new suits and shoes, because you cannot see what I'm wearing behind, you know, under my desk, um, it now gets spent in, in your studio, in your decorum, right? So I think having, what I've learned is that having reliable equipment, having, you know, the right stuff as to what people would expect this year with a little bit on top, but that goes up every year, right? And then still you make mistakes because you still your router burns down, right? So now I have a backup router. I didn't order one, I ordered two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I remember so learn all work, the time. I remember in our <laughs> workshop, uh, you you always mentioned if you don't break anything, you're not trying hard enough. So I think that's that's part of the learning 
uh, journey. Yeah, that's that's our get out of jail free card because that's what we were doing with the event camps back in 2010, 2011, right? We said if you're not experiment, if we're not if we're not breaking anything, we're not experimenting hard enough. And what I've learned is that we try to bake that into any of the event designs we do with you know with teams and with clients because it puts a smile on the mind, right? Everybody's experienced it. You know, it makes people feel. But when it does happen, it's your get out of jail free card because at least you've ticked that box and said, okay, we broke something. Great, right? <laughs> Celebrate it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Throw confetti at it, whether it's on, on, on your desk or in digital mode, it doesn't matter. Um, but the ability to celebrate failure, I think, is exactly what you said. You know, you have to, but you have to be very upfront with that stuff. You've got to be, you know, another thing we do very diligently and it's not easy it's like that balance between analog and digital right whatever you do digital find the analog counterpart and vice versa and sometimes you have to think really really hard to do it but it's part of the fun right it's part of the fun um and if you're able to do that i mean you went through our program and that's why some people say you know the bond you build with these people is is pretty phenomenal you can't wait to meet them in person right it's almost like the feeling I had in 2011 about Twitter, maybe, when I started in 2008, 2009. And in 2011, I met people at event camp who, you know, we've been communicating on Twitter for a long time. And all of a sudden, we met in person. That was magic, right? You cut all the small talk. You don't need to do all of that. You just carry on because you know each other's stream of consciousness and you can connect to that. I think that's part of digital dexterity. That's what we're building now as well. And it will only increase the need for, for that, right? I haven't... I don't listen to less radio than I used to before the internet. I probably listen to more, but I make a conscious choice about listening to radio, listening to a podcast, you know, uh, watching TV, right? Um, strange enough, when, you know, what happened in the US this last week happened, uh, last weekend, I don't know, the 6th, um, it's hard to beat TV, really, right? I'm not going to sit around my computer with my family and say, this. well, we all saw it probably triggered somewhere with a notification, but that notification changes my behavior and I actually go to the living room and switch on the TV and, you know, watch that craziness yeah. in real time um, because it's a trusted channel. I maybe 30 years ago, people would switch on the radio because that was the most live thing that could be brought to you, right? And the commentator would describe it in color and had a very rich ability to describe with the right words what they saw and interpret it you know yeah so it's about keeping the artistic skill of what the radio host had in the 1980s i guess or 70s maybe <laughs> or even earlier <laughs> 1950s i don't know when you know tv got really popular um but the fact that it's gone from black and white to color tv we don't talk about that anymore right the fact that it's all flat panel or whether it's on your computer or on your mobile device. or I remember seeing the first video on a mobile device in 2003 at the CEO Mobile Telecom Conference when I was still working in a five-star hotel. The whole, the whole room was perplexed and there were CEOs of mobile telecom companies. I mean, I tell it to my kids and they're like, right? How, how was this uh, excited that's, at all? That's progress and that's the future for you, right? So... If you see it, you'll know, but you don't know until you see it. So make it visible. Yeah. And sometimes I heard this one, you will see it when you believe it. That's also rather maybe connected to, to mindset. But uh, the one that I liked a lot is this connection that you find like a digital analog balance in the way you design things and also like think hard about like what can be like the, the analog components that match with the digital, like what are the digital ones that could... Uh, uh, could match uh, with the with the analog one. Well, we're almost at the point of uh, of wrapping up. But as a game changer, I always uh, want I always wanted to ask you as well. Like, what is the vision for for the decade ahead? You said like you don't like the futurist, but is there anything as well that you uh, that you would like to achieve that is on your uh, on your bucket list? I think with the event canvas, you you already created in a way uh, a movement. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the future vision. Um, uh, so we'd, we'd love for, um, and we make no secret about it, right? So we'd love for students that are currently, you know, learning in the Event Design Certificate Young Professionals program. You know, we have 
couple of hundred students, and there's, there's probably 15, 16 universities now that, are, that have put it in place since we started the pilot. I'd love for this to be, become like the default way to, to think about events to, from the get-go. Right? So, so you actually design it first before you go and do it, which I think will dramatically improve the events, um, uh, even if you don't have a lot of experience. Because students can be fantastic designers. They might still need to learn how to do the events, but you know they'll, they'll wrap their heads around it because most of us have to. So my dream would be that, let's say, the pinnacle events that have started adopting this and the students that are new at doing this meet, right? And whoever's stuck in the middle gets crunched. That's what's going to happen, hopefully, in 10 years. And then, you know, people won't talk about you know, events that don't apply event design or, you know, doing large concerts without sheet music, you know, is, is unimaginable, you know, but it took a while for that to get to where it is. Um, so I'd love to see a lot of, you know, um, a lot of adoption, you know, people speaking the language, improving the conversation. Um, we'd love to bring our next book to life. You know, the first book came out four years ago. Um, this book is a result of the experiences over the last four years, right? So maybe in 10 years, we'll have, you know, whatever the, the, the next chapters or components are of that in place, because it's a, it's a learning organism, but it's not just the people at the Event Design Collective. It's everyone that's, you know, we're almost hitting the 500 mark on certified event designers uh, this year, which I think is great, but it's only a beginning, right? Um, you know, um, Esperanto didn't didn't survive, and it wasn't and it wasn't because it wasn't good, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's because the island that it was spoken on was off the coast of Italy, and nobody nobody could get to it. <laughs> wow, uh, well, what a what a treat! This conversation. Thanks a lot for for sharing your story. But as well your your insight the methodology and yeah for sure we're going to uh, to put the links into into the show notes and uh, and I already from the conversation got some more points to put into my idea quarantine for uh, for future creations uh, for the listeners the idea quarantine is also part of the uh, event canvas methodology uh, kind of a method that you don't forget things because sometimes uh, when you walk your dog good ideas come up but right now also i got some ideas and i'll put them in my idea quarantine and so uh yeah balance the digital and the analog and uh yeah thanks a lot Ruth, for this conversation thanks fabian for your inspiration and uh, for bringing the human touch to to our programs that you've done in the past and i look forward to many more collaborations and like I said, you know, ideas in the idea quarantine, we, we, the, the, when we first started saying that four or five years ago, no, six years ago, in our process, people were like, what do you mean quarantine? We had to explain, you know, this is what happened when the plague, you know, in, in Venice and the boats had to stay out for 40 days. And quarant means, you know, quarantine, quarantine. That's yeah. how they got to that before they let people into the city. Again, now everybody knows what quarantine means, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Taking ideas out of the idea quarantine and using them, um, I think what's relevant there, like you said, is if the idea changes uh, in the design in the desired direction of change, then it's a good idea. It's not because you came up with it or because your boss said so or because you need a validator of whether an idea will create value. And that's the, you know, the delta test, right? So does it bring you from A to B, from entry to exit behavior? And if you think of things like that, you can crack most problems yeah, and challenge any idea. Thank you, Fabian. Cool, yeah. Let's crack on with this mindset and this spirit. Thanks a lot. What a beautiful conversation with Ruth. The event canvas really inspires me and already helped me create more meaningful events with the empathizing with the stakeholders and from there on really frame what kind of change do you want to articulate. We hope we could also change, enable and inspire you in this conversation. Let's stay in touch. Follow us at Arts Now, and I see you around.